In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the pod. Today, we're joined by Martin Nyoff, who's actually one of the foremost experts in skill acquisition. He's at Dutch Baseball, and he's done some really innovative and interesting things that we're hoping to cover here on the pod talking about how we can actually program some of the things we're doing with skill acquisition into a full calendar year and over the course of long-term development for athletes. And then what we can start to do to actually alter athletes' movement, alter their movement sequences, throwing mechanics without having any detriment to performance in the long-term, especially as we talk about in-season programming with athletes having to focus on performance and being able to improve over the course of their career, because a lot of athletes, as we know, are always in season with college ball, you have fall ball, then you're going into winter season where you're trying to prove yourself. So welcome to the part uh, podcast here. Maybe you could give a little bit of uh, your background on, on how you got to the point you're at and your playing experience in Dutch Major League. Uh, first of all, Max, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, I... I started playing baseball when I was seven, um, was pretty good at it. So went through national youth teams that happens quite fast in Holland because we don't have a lot of people playing, of course. So did some traveling, went to European championships and world cups. And at some point I got a scholarship in Lindenwood university in, uh, in, in, in Linden, of in St. Charles, Missouri, next to, uh, St. Louis. You know, I had a big dream you know, become a professional baseball player, but uh, did a year of that. And I saw that there were a lot of people like me, um, ha- had some talent, but <laughs> not enough. So I, I went home and uh, finished my PE degree. And um, I just played in Holland in the Dutch major league and um, was a PE teacher. And then Robert Einhorn, I don't know if you heard of him. He played for the Yankees. He's now the director of one of the biggest soccer clubs in Holland. Okay. Came back and um, started a uh, academy himself, the first one in Holland called the Unicorns. Uh, and it's a translation of an Einhorn in Dutch. So I started working for him uh, because I was a PE teacher and I know something of training. So while doing that, somebody called me up um, of the university that I worked at or I studied at. And he said, you got to talk to this guy. And I'm like, okay. So I go there and explain this guy baseball. And I had the right few pro program. I don't know if you know it, but it has an analysis program where you, you know, you tape a guy and you load him up in the computer and then you have um, all the major league hitters and pitchers in there. So you compare it to him. And then, so I was talking to this guy and then he took over the conversation and, Two hours later with my jaw here, I was like, I got to start all over again. And uh, this guy was Franz Bosch. Um, and then, yeah, he opened the rabbit hole. So what I did is I started studying and, and applying what these things into practice at that academy and then another academy. And Franz kind of took me under his wing. And he still does, by the way. <laughs> um, so, and then... During those years, they asked me to become the, the director of talent development in Holland because we were doing stuff differently. And I got noticed uh, by doing that. 
And at the same time, Paul Venner and Bart Hanegraaf, uh, these guys also studied on the front and they're good friends of mine. So it, like it was a coincidence that everybody got together and and uh, working together and having Franz as a mentor. And, and yeah, that, that's how everything changed. So I had a small playing career, uh, started as a normal trainer coach like everybody else and, and then met this awesome guy that that totally changed my world and the baseball talent development program in holland how did that look because i know franz isn't from the baseball background that's not what he grew up doing as a sport so how how did that kind of look for you well what he was saying like so he was a an artist and a um so he was a painter, but he also studied PE when he was young, right? And he's like 63 or whatever right now. Uh, but he started going into painting like the old masters were doing. Uh, but for that, he had to study anatomy. And then there were some guys from the medical university asked him to do all these drawings for uh, medical journals. So he really started understanding how... The, the body but not only the body but also like horses and stuff how how their muscles and how their joints but also even the um, 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 central nervous system and and what would enervate a muscle uh, which which nerve so and he started basically in every movement at some point uh, logically thinking about what was happening and and how they should be fixed um, and, and so it doesn't matter if it's baseball or, or soccer or sprinting, he follows the same steps and then he comes to all these conclusions that nobody else does. And it's all very logical. <laughs> yeah, it is logical. The one interesting thing for me being in the United States and going through a lot of this is in university, you, you don't necessarily learn, I guess in, in certain ways you learn some of the basics here, but then it's like, it's like a whole different realm of uh, application and then even a whole different realm of science that's completely beyond what you learn in the university over here. And then what's been interesting for me, being from the United States um, and being specifically in the Midwest, the United States is reading Franz's work and, and reading some of your stuff online. There's almost a different, uh, especially it's obviously been translated, but there's, there's always like something interesting in the in the way things are are written out and i don't know if phraseology is the word but the way sentences are are put together which also i don't i don't know if it makes it a better learning experience maybe because you have to like focus on each individual component and really try to think about it whereas you could read through a book and just graze through it so it's it's been interesting for me in in that respect um but the the thing i really want to get to here with you is we're talking about throwing, which is different than like a lot of these other athletic movements in that there's at times risk associated, especially when you're dealing with arm pain and, and athletes who have had uh, some degree of structural damage. And you have to kind of balance at times pathology and anatomy with your, with your motor learning application. So how could you go about or how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so um well we we kind of do that by um so we have meetings where our physical therapist 
um, our strength trainers and the skill trainers are all together and they make up a plan. So you know, let's say um, um, if you have a shot putter, right? He uses his arm and I, I, I'm sure you've read this in the book. It's ex extension and flexion. Uh, it's force production. Um, and it looks like a, kind of a bench press, right? So they what they do in the gym kind of resembles the the uh, thing that they do in in skill in, in in the shot putting. Well, when you're throwing, it's a phase transition from uh, from doing this to total elasticity in the arm, uh, where you um, use um, co contractions. Um, um, to add energy to use it in an elastic way. So what we do in the gym is also exercises like that. So we kind of build a very strong uh, arm. Um, uh, for example, you can do the uh, uh, rotator cuff exercises, but we like to use the um, shoulder sphere because it resembles way more the movement of um, of 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 the arm like it's been done in uh, in the skill, in throwing itself. So by training the body uh, or the muscles in the gym the same way as they're being used in the skill, um, this will help uh, um, to have a robust system and a very strong arm that can resist a lot of load. Specificity is king, right? When we talk about transfer yeah. to transfer to sport, we look at some of these different muscles. We look at how they, how they act. And you're talking about tr phase transitions and, and going from maybe like a eccentric to concentric action over to an isometric or kind of pseudo isometric contraction with elastic action of the serial ends. There's always like a discussion of, okay, how do certain muscles contract and, and how do other muscles contract? And then you, you have like this, uh, almost like you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, if I do things as specific as I possibly can to the actual sport, maybe it doesn't matter so much all the time, but when we look at the rotator cuff, what are your thoughts? Cause I'm looking at the rotator cuff and I'm looking at the architecture of the rotator cuff. And then I'm looking at, you know, the length of the muscles compared to the length of, uh, you know, the tendinous structure. And it seems to me like, subscapularis and some of these other rotator cuff muscles may do better with some sort of uh, stretch shortening cycle. Whereas we look at the lats and you're definitely thinking, okay, the lat spans this huge distance, long tendinous structures. We're definitely thinking more of an isometric elastic action. How do you kind of, from your perspective, how do you make sense of that? And then how would you implement that into what you're doing with guys in terms of uh, application? Yeah, it's a very good and deep, deep question. Um, so with uh, we always have the discussion because we think we know a lot and then the physical therapists think they know a lot. And then <laughs> some there's some fights in the room about how to train this. And then mm -hmm. um, um, we we what we kind of do is we look. Uh, uh, so you have contextual and then you have inter inter intramuscular. So the, how they work together and then you have the muscle itself and and you can make the, the muscle. So we're not, and I'm not saying that we're not doing, uh, uh, eccentric, eccentric, no, sorry. Um, um, pushing and pulling exercise, make, make the muscle stronger, 
doing hypertrophy training. We actually do that, but we that's not the only thing we do. Um, we have parts in our program, and it's and that's kind of different than it's it's here because we are we don't have competition from October, November, December, January, February, March. So like for six months, we do not have a competition. So in those first three, four months of no competition, we actually do lift. But we not only we're not only lifting, we're also doing the coordination uh, exercises. Right. And then it gradually it, it starts to shift when we pass uh, New Year then it's more of coordination and we do some some lifting or some uh, um, um, uh, eccentric eccentric work uh, uh, but more um, more the other stuff so we so the the um, uh, the, uh, the rotator cuff sorry we make it strong and and then we try to uh, after it's been strong we try to uh, train it uh, uh, the other way as well. That and I'm, I'm sure you've talked to Randy uh, Sullivan yeah. a little bit about this. With our season being different, and you kind of have what I would say is uh, an advantage potentially on us where we're, we're with athletes. And, you know, a lot of these athletes are constantly in season. And there's always been a pushback from the strength and conditioning communities. Like we need these guys to have an off season so they can develop. If, if you're in our scenario, how do you go about like, hey, these guys are going to play high school baseball or college baseball, then they're going to play summer and then they got a fall season. And then now they're really only off for maybe like part of October, but really November, <coughs> uh, December, and then January. And then in February, they're, they're picking back up. So we got like three months that's technically our off season. Yeah. And then guys are like in competition mode all the time. Yeah. So what we do in competition is so those three months, I would, I would try to make gains in 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 the gym, right? Um, also with the recovery time, that's perfect because you know if you do some other lifting or some heavy lifting, you need twenty four to forty eight hours recovery. Um, what we do in the um, when they start going into the season is that we uh, with us they play on on Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. So on the Monday, we do some lifting. But the other days, we just do the coordination stuff. And the, the, the advantage of the coordination uh, training is that um, the recovery time is, is very low. It's between 15 minutes and maybe six hours, depending on how, how crazy you go about it. But it, it's more about training the, um, um, the signal going into the muscle instead of the muscle itself or, or, or the firing of it. So um doing the coordination part you know it's lower weights it's in more planes um it's it's coordination uh, uh of different body parts by transferring uh, energy through the system uh, and it's it's quick not only quick as in we don't do it for 90 minutes yes we do it quick maybe only 20 minutes or 30 minutes but it's also a quick movement um which stimulates the nervous system which makes it that it's uh, the recovery time is low. So I would still, you would still be able to do both. Just maintain the strength by doing this once a week, because if you do it once a week, you maintain your strength and then you make, get more strength those three months. And then during the season, 
do more coordination stuff, which is very good anyways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even, you know, guys here, they like guys will come in, they've done a lot of strength and conditioning and then doing a lot of that coordination stuff. They can't believe how, how challenging and difficult <laughs> it can be. You know, they're yeah. like a college guy. They're, they, they're strong, a little cocky. They get in there with like the smallest, you know, aqua ball. And then yeah. they're like falling all over the place. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always interesting how difficult it is for, for a lot of these guys. And were you in season, are you programming some of that stuff like the day before, or are you doing it? Hey, like you're going to pitch on a, on a Saturday, like we're going to take Friday off or, or what are you doing in terms of in season in that respect? Um, um, like to have a day off or what's exactly the yeah so like say you're gonna pitch a guy on saturday oh yeah what's your like friday routine for the average for the average guy they're off yeah oh and if they're not off it's just really really like a primer like stimulate mm -hmm. the nervous system um really short uh, effective and then done gotcha I know Randy's like talked a lot about um, and, and Franz talks quite a bit about it is improving, improving like movement overall that then can be transferred into a skill specific event. So improving the ability to contract through the core, improving the ability to uh, create force closure um, and those sorts of things. And then athletes can take that into the throw I guess uh, when you look at what you're doing with altering throwing mechanics, are you spending majority of your time on, on, on actually training what, what many might call athleticism, or are you actually saying, Hey, here's one component, let's get into the throw. And then here's some other very specific things to throwing. Okay. I'll tell you exactly how our winter program looks, because I think that's where we make the biggest gain. So on, Absolutely. on, on Monday morning, they have sports specific training on Monday afternoon, and then they go to school. And then Monday afternoon, they, have, uh, they lift, they have weight training. Uh, Tuesday morning, they got alternative training. Tuesday afternoon, they have sports-specific training. Wednesday morning, they have sports-specific training. Wednesday afternoon, they have uh, strength and conditioning again. Thursday morning, they have al alternative training. Uh, Thursday afternoon, they have sports specific training. And then Friday morning, they have strength and conditioning again. So it's nine practices. Three are strength and conditioning. Four are sports specific. And two are uh, alternative training. Now, um, these alternative trainings, um, they are like we call them donor sports. What, what, what we do there is like, if you look at interceptive timing tasks for position players, uh, like they have to hit a ball. So anything like with ping pong or table tennis or squash or badminton or stuff like that. We do some basketball for agility and throwing. We do some handball. Um, so, but it's also just doing some other sports for these kids. It's fun. You see different reactions. You see, uh, um, um, you know, how, how they uh, act uh, in, in a different environment. Um, you know, sometimes they give up really quick. You can have a discussion about that. Uh, sometimes they, they cheat, something like all these things. 
you see, and they're all beneficial. We do gymnastics. You've probably seen some stuff about that as well. It's coordination. Yep. You can see it as a strength and conditioning alternative training. So yeah, we, we do stuff like that. But the, the, the biggest thing that we do is we do an analysis and the analysis is based upon the tractors. And the attractors are, we got the load, we got the front foot uh, placement and stability. We got the kinetic chain. So hip comes first. Uh, we have um, the deceleration part. We have the arm, the, the front arm, how it works. And we have, of course, the, um, the, the arm action uh, up to release. And, and what we do in the gym and what we do in the um, sport-specific training is we, after we've done the analysis and we say, hey, this guy has a loading problem because he's collapsing through his knee or he's not really hinging into his back hip. Um, we do in the gym, we do uh, strength and conditioning practice or, 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 or um, exercises that are that he needs to do because he needs to get a better load. And we do in the sports specific training, a lot of variations on how you can load in a exercise, because when you get all these variations, but it's the same problem, you learn how to solve the problem instead of solving one trick. Um, and we do this cycle every six weeks of, um, of doing a new analysis and see where they are. And then we get this kid after we've done the analysis and we work together with all the professionals. We have a talk with the kid. He, he has to make his own personal development plan, but we give him a lot of input. So when he goes to the gym, he knows he needs to work on the load. And when he goes into the sports specific training, he knows he needs to work on the load. He is the owner of the program. Uh, so every six weeks we have these talks. Every six weeks we have the, uh, these analysis and every six weeks they have a new program. And, and so if you look at the strength and conditioning, they have to do a baseline program based upon pitching or, or position player specific or whatever. But on top of that, they have room uh, to do, to focus on these areas where they need improvement. I like that you said they own the program. I'm guessing at Dutch baseball, where you're at now, you're dealing with a lot of kids who are, you know, self-motivated and you're there as the guide to them. Would that be fair assessment? Yeah, but still they're in purity. So, but if yeah. they choose for this program, uh, they, they know they have a chance of signing a pro professional contract or at least getting a full ride at a, at a college. So, and, and um, before they come into our program, because it's an Olympic program, it's funded by our Olympic committee. We have talks with them, of course, about their motivation. So it's not that they just sign up and show up. So I, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in a luxury position because when they're not, you know, putting an effort in them. I was like, okay, well, what are we doing here? Is this what you want? Because you've taken up a spot of somebody else. And it's not like after a week we throw them out, but yeah, we, at sometimes we have some, this, some talks with some players about that. They have to, you know, get rid of, of, of the slack and put some more effort in it. I, you know, it's crazy to me because America's pastime is supposed to be baseball and I don't think we have anything in the United States that remotely resembles 
what you guys are doing over there. Are you aware um, of anything? Well, I, I've been to Vanderbilt uh, for 10 days, uh, like uh, seven years ago, eight years, eight years ago, when Derek Johnson was still the pitching coach there. Mm-hmm. It was a really good program. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I cannot judge. Uh, I know there's a lot of not good stuff out there, uh, but it's the same in Holland. I know there's probably a lot of good stuff out there as well. I just don't. Well, there's know. great stuff. It's just I'm talking from a structural standpoint. Oh yeah, have something that's yeah. You know, but you have to understand the... we have the we are the size of the half of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> so and there's 18 million people living in that small part, and and our infrastructure is like we can have a with the national team a centralized training like two times a week because. For the most people, it's just a half an hour drive. And if you are very far away, it's 90 minutes. So that's a huge advantage that we have. I got you. Now, if we can jump to a a slightly different topic here, we're talking about sports-specific adaptations and then things we're doing outside of the actual sport in terms of our training practices, strength and conditioning stuff to actually improve these movement attractors. We talked about foot placement in the throw. Yeah. If you're if you're saying, hey, we got a we got a movement flaw in an athlete in regards to the foot placement, talk us through maybe some things you'd start to implement with these guys because we've all seen, and I use it all the time still. Um, we've all seen where you know we may alter foot placement by hey, this kid does not have the hip anatomy to have the foot placement that he's that he's utilizing right now, and then we can start to implement some things. Hey, let's use some, let's use some internal feedback. That's our number one thing that we see guys using is, okay, just step farther this way, step farther to the left. You're stepping too far to the right, step farther left. That's what guys always use. And, you know, we use it from time to time here, but if you really look at it, how well does that transfer? And then you get guys out in the game where they're like, they go back. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, it's, it's like uh, totally jumbled up in their mind. So then we can use other things where we're like, let's put something on the floor, get them to step on this side of it. But then like, what other tools do we have in our toolbox to start to work on some of that stuff? Yeah. So first of all, is it a structural thing or not? So like if you need ankle stiffness, you need to train the ankle in stiffness. So like rope skipping or run-ups or, uh, you know, all these, these stuff where like short ground contact times where you need to because if it's uh, so it, it needs to be higher paced instead of low pace uh, that's how you train let's say ankle stiffness if somebody is collapsing to his ankle but if his ankle is still very strong um, um, but he's still in that motor pattern all the time you have a different problem right so there there the toolbox of, of implicit learning is basically uh, um, 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 mirror neurons. You can use mirror neurons, so monkey see, monkey do. And you use this in, in very young players. So you got the, the differential learning or the chaos training where you basically use, uh, uh, create a lot of context uh, towards the goal. So it's it, within the uh, um, constraint-led approach, task, environment, and, and body. Um, you cha- you change the overlap all the time, uh, um, and you use that variation uh, to let the body solve the problem itself. As an example, 
in the in that triangle you if you look at the environment you can use uh, different heights where somebody steps up or mm -hmm. slope down slope up and then it's like okay if you walk onto a stairs you have to plant your foot from above down you cannot shift in so every time you step onto something but there are different heights uh um the body will learn it cannot do this anymore this but it has to do this um and that is in the in in, in the triangle of course in the higher lower uh a slope down a slope up uh, uh you using that um so differential learning is a very fun um uh, uh thing to do and it works really good but it's for a lot of people it's a an excuse to just do crazy stuff but it has exactly. to be always that's in, the problem yeah that's it's a big problem. problem it has to be always in the context of what you want to accomplish uh, so it has to be contextual you have to throw something at a target so you see if you hit the target or not while doing this stuff um then you have a uh, blocked versus random training that you can use you can use endpoint learning which is very very powerful you can use a uh, forced environment and learning um, you can use feed the mistake that's a good good example too like if, if the knee is collapsing in the load use a tera band and pull the knee towards yourself so you're actually trying to accomplish that the knee comes to you and you just say hey i don't want the knee to come to me so what they automatically do is they keep their knee stable and they go into their back hip. And one, once they go forward to throw the ball, you let loose of one side and then they can just throw. Um, so all these, all these um, implicit learning tools, you should, or you should, we're using them uh, all the time. And depending on where somebody is, is in his learning curve, um, you use you use different ones. So if if like the endpoint is not um, good, that's what you have to fix. Uh, um, the first thing you should fix is the endpoint, um, because if the body has no idea where it needs to go to to get the result, then you have a big problem. Um, so that's 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 the most stable point in the movement should be the end point or the first stable point. This is even what we were talking about in the beginning, which is what you guys are doing over there is use a lot, utilizing a lot of the same things that, you know, we'll utilize here with different terminology. Like I, I can't remember what you referred to uh, like where you're pulling someone in the direction of the fault or facilitating the fault. What did you yeah. refer to? What did feeding, you call that? Feeding the mis mistake. Feeding the mistake. Yeah, we call it like error augmentation here. So like okay, yeah. a lot of the like, and that's, I think like a good thing actually for people learning a lot of this stuff from you guys, you guys being the innovators on a lot of this stuff and the people that are bringing this stuff out to the masses, um, which is really necessary is it's going to require like extra diligence and, and careful attention when you are, uh, reading through the material and watching your stuff and reading your stuff online and listening to these because like you call it feeding the mistake and then people have to really think about it. Um, when we talk about like uh, some of these things, like do you ever find that you add uh, 
like some, some form of proprioceptive input beyond that, like we'll find ourselves utilizing mass or something like that just to stimulate some proprioceptors. Like, yeah, we have what we'd call like feeding the mistake or uh, endpoint learning. We'd call like backwards chaining or yeah, backwards or, chaining. Yeah. 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 Um, so doing those sorts of things, but then like, okay, we're going to put a, a cuff weight on the ankle. We're going to add two pounds to the ankle so that you can really feel where your foot's at in space. But we get into <clears> an interesting thing there where once again, we can start to focus too much on the, the qualities of the, of the motion rather than the end result. What are your thoughts in regards to some of that stuff? Um, I think that proprioceptive training, like you add resistant bands or you add stuff like you're saying now, can be really beneficial, but only in the beginning. Because in the end, I need to know myself where my body is in space, not because of a added um, uh, thing. So if I'm pulling somebody forward or or if you're only using it in one direction, I don't think that's, no, I think it could be way more beneficial if you use not only pulling somebody forward, but also pulling somebody backwards and also pulling, pulling somebody sidewards. Uh, because then again, you create um, context on the whole, the, the, the whole area instead of just one part of the area. Um, and then again, uh, like I said, um, in the beginning to let somebody feel what he needs to do. Uh, yes, for sure. But then take it off because he needs to feel it himself and not because of the band. Um, exactly. He's uh, got to do it without the band in sport. You know, he's got to, he's got to do it in the contextual environment of yeah. playing on the field. Yeah. Well, this has been a phenomenal podcast. I'm actually hoping you'll come on again here in the future. There's so much we could talk about. Like this conversation could, could go forever. So I want to thank you very much for coming on. I also want to thank you for spreading a lot of this knowledge because this is stuff that a lot of people have never even heard of before. Yeah. Yeah, Max. Well, uh, yes, sometimes it's hard to, uh, to <laughs> you know, to, to get the appointment going, but uh, um, yeah, I'd love to uh, have talks like this and, 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 and uh, reach out to a broader audience. Um, it's awesome. And, and so they can always, you know, if you're listening, you can always text me. If I think I know the answer, I will answer. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you that I don't know. So, um, yeah, I'm here to to help and spread and, you know, what, what we believe in. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Where can where can people find you online? Uh, on Twitter, for the most part. Uh, and I think it's Martijn, my name, Martijn Niles. Um, awesome that's yeah. a for sure follow for anybody because although like he's not always on there when there's when he's putting stuff on there martine has some of the best stuff um and best material and, and there's a lot of other guys out there um but i know that you're you're doing some courses here like at florida baseball ranch are you planning to do any more uh, symposiums or courses here in the in the u.s yeah, we're we're gonna do uh, the summit again in uh, at Randy's on the twenty third and twenty fourth of October. But we're also uh, building a course, a baseball course. Uh, Franz Bosch, Paul Venner, Bart Hanegraaf, Randy Sullivan, and and myself. Um, and hopefully that will come out next year. It's a three stage course. Um, 
for uh, so we start uh, at the at the 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 um, you know at the starting point. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, um, and then we just build up and build up, and it's going to be it's going to be really cool. Yeah, specifically awesome. for baseball. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye out for that. Once again, thank you for coming on. I'm Max Wardell, in the name of Overhead Athletics, signing off.